card-carrying Basie at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course in the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which airs on Wednesday morning live at 8 a.m. for two hours. I'm Professor Adi Weiner. I'm the co-host and collaborator of our Wharton Moneyball two-hour show, and I'm also a professor of statistics at the Wharton School of Business, and I'm here this morning to break down the top takeaways on our show this week, we hosted as our guests uh, Rick Peterson, the director of pitching development for the Baltimore Orioles, and two academics, Brett Green, who's an assistant professor of finance at University of California, Berkeley, and Jeffrey Zwiebel, a professor of finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, and they were discussing with us the hot hand, and Rick was discussing with us the World Series, or what he liked to call the World Serious. Here is our first clip. I watched the the not the first three innings. I watched closer to the middle and the end of the game okay. with Andrew Miller. Well, yeah. Devastating. He, he, he was, that, that's he was devastating. Cons- so yes, that's he was devastating. For the Cubs, I mean, it doesn't is, seem like anybody the, can get anything off. Yeah, that. I mean, so a couple of things that, that, that when did I they reacted. Bring him in? When did they bring him in? Uh, he must have been in the sixth, sixth okay. and seventh, and put out a couple of big fires. It's classic fireman baseball that baseball's moved away from over the years, and now it seems that the better teams are returning to. Of course, I looked reluctantly or longingly at Andrew Miller because, in my view, that was the Yankees. <laughs> He's giving up their season okay. when they traded him. But and, you and would appreciate trapping. this. You know, the, I don't want to say the criticism, but now the concern for Terry Francona has been, well, you had Andrew Miller pitch 46 pitches last night. All right, but you don't understand, this isn't a long-run thing. This is a yeah. short series. The wins happen in discrete numbers. One, two, <laughs> there you go. three. Now they've got one. Right. And let me just say, if he hadn't put out those fires and the Cubs come back and win the game, the odds of the series, we, you've talked about this many times, this is, I mean, if Andrew Miller had to throw 76 pitches yeah. to win the it game, been worth it, it would have okay. been worth it. Okay. The thing about baseball is, I mean, this has been Shane's mon- mantra for since we began the show, that every every series is about a coin toss. I dug my, my uh, nails into this this pile of data, and it's exactly right. It's yeah. about 50%. What troubled me from the beginning was that everyone was forecasting the Cubs to oh, even, walk away with this. Yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. still forecasting. Five, five, 538, I think, before the series, had them going in something like a 67%. 67%. Or 68%. Okay, how could it be favorite? so wrong? How could, how could the, the reasoning from this year's data using this, the models, that the good models, yeah. how could it be so wrong, how, so off of the... Archival history. You're saying archivally it's well, about 50%? Well, no, I mean, let me just to say what it is. The, the, it's archivally 50%, just simply taking all the playoff series and looking how often the favorite wins. It's about 50%. But that's probably not how they built their model. No, they probably built no, their model they don't on build this season's data that's right. on how many runs, the run differential, and... Op- that's right. They yeah. built well, it, it, it's, ba- it's based on an ELO model. So it's actually just wins, right. but, I mean, the Cubs, it, it's still, I don't think... You can do anything you want. I mean, yeah. you're, you're still going to get, you're going to get a, a big advantage to the Cubs. And it's and it's and this historical pile of playoff data you're just going to have to ignore. And- wow, that's quite a discussion the four of us were having. The basic issue which we were trying to unpack is how do you forecast a playoff series when you have two approaches? One mean being the historical data 
of the of the regular season, which suggests, for example, this year that the Cubs are strongly favored, and the historical pile of playoff data, which basically says you can ignore the regular season and call it a coin toss. And uh, earlier in the clip, we were talking about why the playoff series are so different from the regular season, mainly because you can use your pitching staff in a completely different way. You don't need to use all your starters. You can use your relievers for more innings and in different situations. And that possibly is the explanation for why we have this gap between the models built on the regular season, which suggests that the Cubs are an overwhelming favorite, and the historical pile of, of playoff data, which suggests that the, playoff, the, the favorites really don't have an advantage. In our next clip, we'll be talking about bullpen usage with Rick Peterson. When you have to face the same guys, that's the other big factor. You know, so Andrew Miller comes in the game, you know, he doesn't want to have to face the same, you know, I don't say he doesn't want to have to, but this is what's so unique about what Andrew Miller does. Because when you look at, you know, we mentioned this before, and I'm throwing a lot of information out there, but this is right up, you know, Wharton Moneyball's alley as far as all the statistical data. You know, if you face 38 total batters facing the game, you know, you're going to win 60-some percent of those games. If you keep going down to 37, 36, 35, your winning percentage keeps going up higher and higher. Right. But what's so, but what's so unique about the closer, when, if you bring in the closer traditionally, traditionally in the eight, in the, in the ninth inning, or maybe pick up an, an out or two in the eighth, he, he's facing maybe six, seven, eight mm-hmm. hitter in the lineup, or mm-hmm. eight, nine, one, or nine, one, two. What's so unique about how Andrew, no one's even talking about this. Not only the fact that they're bringing him in, is Tito bringing him in at, at leverage points in the game, he's facing the middle of the lineup almost mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. he comes into the that's game. That's the best usage. Yeah. Right, right. That, that's amazing. And, yep. and to strike out 34 guys out of 22 innings, but what, 22 innings times three, that's 66, 66 outs, he's striking out more than half the guys he's facing. Mm-hmm. Amazing observation, I think, by Rick Peterson that the game has really changed, and Andrew Miller reflects that change. He's being brought in, not in the 8th or ninth, but he's being brought in in the 6th or 7th, and he's facing the top hitters in the lineup, and by definition, the top hitters in the lineup are automatically a leverage point. I don't want to push my idea further than it already has been pushed, but I've been arguing for years that you should begin every game with a reliever, not necessarily the closer, but a reliever because the beginning of a game always begins with a leverage point, the top one, two, three hitters in the lineup. And you really want to make sure that you don't uh, underuse your your relief staff, which is has uh, I think the Yankees were underusing their relief staff, and I think we saw in the single game playoff that uh, Buck Showalter underused his star pitcher Zach Britton. In fact, not only did he underuse him, he didn't use him at all. In our next clip, Rick Peterson will be talking about uh, a historical memory of Pedro Martinez facing Derek Jeter against a great pitcher. Some of these guys are made to look pretty foolish, but they stay with it and they learn and they adapt and they get better. It's it's a neat thing to watch. It's really cool. I mean, I, I remember the first time when Pedro Martinez was in New York with the Mets and the first time that we played the Yankees. You know, so I was going through, you know, the game prep and I'm, look, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the, at bat and I, and I looked and I said, Derek Jeter has faced Pedro Martinez close to a hundred times. And I went to Pedro and I said, Pedro, I said, you faced Derek a hundred times? And he looked at me and kind of like that crooked smile. He goes, he goes, Rick. He goes, do you know how stressful and emotionally spent I am before and after these games? He says, Rick, there's only 17 inches. How many places can I go with how many yeah. inches? I only have 17 inches. Right. 
you know, so to face somebody a hundred times, I mean, how many places can you go? There's not, there's not all this space. And you were talking earlier, right, when I came on, you know, about how all these pitches, you know, they all pitch to the edges. So when you look at premier pitching in the game, and you look at Kluber and, and, and Miller last night and Allen, and, and you look at the fact that, they, like, you know that you, where your margin for error is. You know, and the margin for error cannot be out over the middle of the plate. Rick is bringing in uh, one of his favorite topics, which I think is under discussed among the sabermetrics or the analytics community, community, which is the effect of the psychological pressure of having to perform day in and day out. And what Pedro Martinez was describing was the intense um, after after effect of having to face Derek Jeter or other great hitters over and over again because there's essentially no room for error. I mean, we're not talking about minor leaguers or college ball players or high school ball players. You leave one out of the plate, plate and they crush it. Therefore, you got to leave it at the very edges and you can't make mistakes. And that's extraordinarily stressful. And that's, of course, what makes the great ones truly great. In our next clip, we'll be listening to Jeffrey Zwiebel, professor of finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, and he'll be introducing his work on the hot hand in both basketball and baseball. So when you looked at this academic research, which really went on for generations, so Tversky and and his student Gilovich wrote this paper, and it spawned a cottage industry, really. Um, They looked at it first in basketball, and then they looked, you know, other people came in and looked in other sports. And uh, when you looked at this literature, what was it you were reacting to that said you needed to jump in? So two main things. One sort of obvious for a sports fan uh, is endogeneity often was not taken into account. And what I mean by that is a lot of the literature started and much of it was in basketball. And the obvious thing a sports fan would tell you is uh, that uh, Kobe Bryant, if he uh, uh, he does, won't shoot better than other players because he's double teamed, because he's taken much harder shots. Because mm-hmm. you, you know, you take a player who's a better player. Uh, most better players don't have higher shooting percentages in basketball than lower scoring players. Why? Because they're covered more, mm-hmm. because they're taking harder shots. And if that's true for better players overall, you'd expect it to also be true for guys who are temporarily better, mm-hmm. i.e. for hot players. Mm-hmm. Second issue, uh, more of a technical issue, is a lot of the, the statistics, a lot of the econometric tests, were just very poorly done. We're done in a way that there were methodological problems with it, all of which seemed to be biased toward not finding a hot hand. Um, uh, So those two things combined, uh, and I found it kind of remarkable how many economists would uh, you know, how many economists in my field would cite these results without being aware of the problems uh, in this research? So Professor Zwiebel was uh, discussing the hot hand. And in fact, what he was describing was the context for them getting involved in the research in the first place. Um, his final point, which I think is potentially the most interesting, is an observation that some of the econometric literature which discussed the existence of the hot hand is basically flawed, and, and it's flawed in a direction which we statisticians can understand deeply. 
their statistical methods were wrong. Um, they had problems with them. And we see this as statisticians widely. There are strong foundational problems with statistical methods used by non-statisticians in their field. And um, I, uh, the, the actual problem in the papers that uh, Professor Zwiebel is describing is probably a little bit too complicated for our show, but they are interesting and worthwhile um, unpacking at some later date. In our final clip, we'll be um, listening to Brett Green. He's an assistant professor of finance at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's going to be talking about their results, which uh, indicate that there's a connection between past performance and future performance in baseball. The two problems that are really challenging here is, well, first of all, what exactly are you measuring? And second, um, how do you how do you validate this? So because you have so many players and you have such a short window and how do you know that what you've gotten is, is really forecast? I mean, out of sample, you have 12 years of so none of your data. How do you, did you, did you take a, a two year holdout sample and say, let's just leave these two years and we'll never touch them. And then after we've done all our research, we're going to validate it. Or how did you, how did you approach that, that, that particular issue, which is I think the most paramount one of all of this. Well, as to the first, for, you know, as to the first issue, the moving average that you're talking about is all our tests have a flavor of we're controlling for player ability, we're controlling for hitter ability, pitcher ability, ballpark, you know, you, you know anything that might be, you know, uh, might have an effect on outcome. And then we're looking at how recent performance affects the next performance. And recent performance is this moving average. We're looking at the often we're focusing on the last. 25 at-bats or last 25 players that the pitcher has faced and ask, does that affect the how they do in the next one? The next um, one? What, uh, yeah, when, uh, excuse me, when you say question, the next one, when you say the next one, like how, what's the future window? I apologize, I just missed that. Oh, it, it, it's the next at-bat. And then if we move forward to another at-bat, we use the 25 at-bats prior to the next at-bat. Okay. As far as the second question, I think one I thing I can jump in on that one. I think we started we started doing this and kind of refining our uh, model based on I think a couple years of data. And we had kind of finished the project with three or four years of data and felt like we were kind of pretty confident. In it. And then at some point we said, well, you know what? It's been long enough. Let's go ahead and get a bunch more data. And and so we we went and this data is freely available. So we downloaded like ten year ten more years of data. We ran our analysis on that sample and got basically the same set of results. Um, and so then in the end, in the, in the version of the paper we have now, we just combined both sets of data. And, um, you know, that's kind of how we got uh, on the robust address. And another thing that gives us some robustness is we tried, you know, a number of different specifications, a number of different definitions of what it means to be hot, of how we measure players' long-run ability, how we measure the opposing pitchers' long-run ability, and we were getting consistent results across almost any, any sensible thing we could test. Wow. Let me recap that research. I think it's really fascinating because it really is contrary to what most statisticians have long believed. They argue that if you adjust properly, the previous five games of performance predict better than historical performance the actual outcomes of a batting or a pitching performance. And the explanation for that is hotness or changes in player quality that is uh, real and measurable and actually quite significantly large. And I don't mean in the statistical sense, I mean in the effects side sense, that um, it's actually a large um, 
improvement or, or decrement in player quality. The number that they tossed out was about one standard deviation in quality, which is a very, very large number. And I, I for one, am very interested in digging my um, nails, if you will, into this data, into this paper, and looking at it with some of our students. And maybe in uh, some years' time, we'll have some of those results to discuss with you on another show. Well, that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it will be available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live every Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner, and until then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your analytics. 